Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are working through the book of Daniel, and today's lesson, the 45th lesson in this series, takes us further into the 11th chapter of Daniel. Here we are looking at the prophecies given to Daniel by God through the angel Gabriel. Class teacher Doug Brady has titled this lesson, The Final Prefigurement taken from Daniel 11, verses 29 to 35. You will certainly want your Bible open to Daniel as we go through this lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets each and every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to join us if you are in the area. And, of course, you will always find the current lesson on our website. In fact, there are over 600 lessons that are on that website from studies of many books of the Bible. It's a great place to learn more about the Scriptures. You'll find them at www.believersbibleclass.com. Well, Doug Brady is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the Believer's Bible Classroom and find a good seat. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Let's turn now to Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 29. If you remember, as we studied this chapter, we've witnessed what I call historical prophecy. What do I mean by historical prophecy? Prophecy that was made before the event, but now we're looking back on it and it's already been fulfilled. One of the great values of that is when we come to verse 36 in this chapter, it's going to be looking forward. Just so you know, you are living right now between verse 35 and verse 36. We won't get to verse 36 today, but you are living between those two verses. Now, one of my friends, Neil Grossman, he plays golf from time to time, right, Neil? Now, let's say that we were with Neil, and we were on a putting green, and he has a bunch of balls down there, and it's 16 feet to the cup, and you watch him, and he strokes that first one, and it goes in, and the second one, and it goes in, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in a row. Then he turns to me and says, Doug, would you like to wager whether I can put this 10th one in? What would a smart guy say? Not a chance. I just seen you drop nine in a row. When you look at these prophecies and how exactly they were fulfilled, is there any question what he says is going to come in the future will come to pass? And the answer is no. That would be a fool's bet to say that's not going to happen. And so this is the end we're going to study today of this future prophecy, this historical prophecy, before we get into the future prophecies. Now, remember, 
Daniel wrote this, chapter 11, between 536 and 533 B.C. We've seen the rise and the fall of the various Egyptian and Syrian kingdoms and the wars between them. And although we were talking about kingdoms in the start of chapter 11, we've now narrowed it down to a study of one man. And who is that man? Antiochus or Antiochus IV. This was the second time that we have seen him in Daniel's prophecy. And we have referred to him as a prefigurement of the Antichrist. Prefigurement. Now that's kind of a fancy and long word. What does prefigurement mean? Well, I got a definition for you that I, I took out of a secular book. It is to show, suggest, or announce by an antecedent type, image, or likeness, or to picture or imagine beforehand. This is what he is. He is an antecedent to the Antichrist. He will not be the Antichrist. He is just a picture of him, of what he's going to do, and what he's going to be like. He's the second that God has given us. Vera, who was the first one? First uh, prefigurement of the Antichrist? Nimrod. Right. We come now, in last week, we looked at verses 21 through 28, and I want to quickly review what we, what we saw. First, in verse 21, we saw his illegitimate rise to power. Then, in verses 20 through to 24, the text tells us that his about his initial military success, he actually won, and he should have won, and he won the battle with uh, Egypt. Then in 25 and 26, it talks about his second military success, only this was because his enemy, the king of the south, were divided amongst themselves. I don't know if you remember that or not. But then in verse 27, it talks about the lying negotiations he had with the king of the south. And finally, in verse 28, speaks about the removal of great plunder from the south, which we're going to talk about in the future, and his anti-Israeli position and the start of his persecution of God's people. So today, we are going to start by looking at Daniel 11, 29 and 30a. But before we go any farther, let's ask God to bless our time. Father, I pray that you will speak to us today. You'll help us to understand what it is you're trying to show us in these passages. Help us to see how they were fulfilled explicitly the way you told us. And help us to know that you want us to know. And that's why you preserved this. That's why you didn't let Antiochus destroy all these scrolls. That's why they were hidden until 1947. And I just thank you for that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now... Going forward, verse 29, it says, At the appointed time he will return and he come and come into the south. But this time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return to his lands. Now, up until now there's been two major conflicts that Antiochus has been in with the king of the south. He's won both of them. But now the tables are turned and his plans are thwarted. Do you see that phrase, at the appointed time? Whose appointed time? That means that God's in control, doesn't it? That means that God is going to bring Antiochus down into Egypt when he is ready. And he has a time that has already been written down. 
And where would it be written down? In the writing of truth that it talked about in chapter 10. All of this is planned out. Now, at the appointed time, this time the tables are turned and, and his plans are thwarted because God had different plans. Now, is there any word or, or something that would cause you to question in that verse? And you would say, I'm not sure what that means. Kitim. Well, let's look at Kitim just a second. Ships for Kitim. Who knows where Kitim is? Who knows who Kitim is? Well, we need to look because this is very important for us to see. Let's look at the word first. The word means bruisers. Bruisers. That is a pugnacious type of person who always wants to get their way and fight for it. Now, this was a general term that was used for the islands of the Mediterranean Sea, but more specifically for the defendants or the descendants of Javan. You say, well, Doug, you're not being a lot of help here. I didn't know what Katim meant, but I don't know who the heck Javan is. Well, let me show you. You know who Noah is, I'm hoping. <laughs> and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Noah's line going down through Japheth, do you know what area of the world or nationality tended to come from Japheth? Europeans. Most of us probably come from the line of Japheth. All right? Japheth had seven sons. Now, you start seeing Gomer and Magog and Meshach and Tubal, and you begin to start, ooh. But I want you to look at Javan. Javan was a descendant of Jephthah. And then Javan had four sons, and one of them was Katim. I am convinced, based on my studies, that the majority of the people or a large people group that came from Katim, that son, we know as Romans. So, ships from Katim, who would that be? Romans. The Romans sent ships because they were unhappy with what was going on between Antiochus and the kings of the south. They didn't like it. We don't want problems in the Middle East. Where have we heard that before? And Rome thought they could, could solve it. In fact, if you read some versions of the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew into the Greek, they just put Rome instead of Katim. But they were sent to interdict the actions of Antiochus. Now, in this campaign of his, his third one against the king of the south, he didn't plan on two things. Number one, obviously, was the interdiction of Rome. But number two was the lack of division in the king of the south. And he's going to get beat this time. It's not going to turn out the way he wants it to. And you see that, of course, in, in the first part of verse 30, where it says, For ships of Katim will come against him, and therefore he will withdraw in fear and will return to his land. Now, there's a very well-known historical event that happened in relation to this. For you see, he's coming south and the ships are landing. How does he know Rome doesn't want him doing this? Because a group or a, we don't know if it was a legion for certain, 
Most people think it was because of the sending of multiple ships. And they were led by a guy by the name of Caius Pompilius Lentus. And he sets up a meeting with Antiochus. And he says to him, Antiochus, you're going to leave the field and you're going to go back home. And if you don't, there's going to be serious repercussions. And Antiochus responds to him and says, listen, I'm going to go back to my camp here. I'm going to think this over. I'm going to talk to my counselors and then I'll send you my decision. Whereupon, and there's different versions of this, but in my, I think the best version is Lannis pulls out his sword and he draws a line, a circle in the sand around Antiochus. And he says, when you have stepped out of this circle, you have made your decision. That's typically Roman. That's the way they tended to do things. Now, Antiochus was scared of Rome. He had visited Rome before. He knows the power of Rome. And he's very unhappy about this situation. And so he leaves. Now, if you notice, this translation is the, in blue, is the new 2020 text. You see, it said before, therefore, he will be disheartened and will return to his. No, the 2020 text, no, he will withdraw in fear. I believe that's a more accurate translation. Antiochus knew the power and the might of Rome. He said, Rome, you just shouldn't ought to be here. But Rome says, oh, yeah, well, we are. And what are you going to do about it? If you don't go home, you've got a serious problem on your hands and you may not have a kingdom anymore. And so he goes home. Now, as he's going home, how do you think somebody as arrogant as Antiochus is going to react? As he's going, he's going to get angrier and angrier and angrier. He's just going to become enraged. Now, when you become enraged like that, what do you want to do? Take it out on someone. So who do you think he's going to take it out on? Israel, the Jews. Exactly right, Damaris. And so... He's going to plan an all-out attack on the culture of God's people. And he's going to force them to do what he wants. So let's look at Daniel 11, starting at the second part of verse 30. And he became enraged at the holy covenant and take action. And he will come back and show regard and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. What is he saying? I'll take regard for those who forsake. That is the Jews who will compromise. Now we go on. Forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, have we heard of that phrase before? Where? Daniel chapter 9. You will also hear that phrase again in Daniel chapter 11. Now it's interesting. This abomination of desolation is a prefigurement of the one that's going to be, that occurred in Daniel or was set out in Daniel 9, Daniel 12, and also in Matthew and Mark when Jesus referred to this abomination of desolation. Then he says, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. 
yet they will fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by plunder for many days. But when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. You see that phrase again? Who's running the show here? What does Antiochus think? He's running the show. Is he making the decisions exactly the way he wants to? Yes, of course he is. But God is so magnificent and so sovereign and so omnipotent and omniscient that he molds all of that into his plan. He can write it down and it's going to happen exactly, exactly the way he says. Let's look, in fact, at what this says. Antiochus is going to make a royal edict that all the peoples in his kingdom will have to do these things. They will have to learn and speak Greek. Now, do you think the Hebrews like that? Do you think God had any purpose for that? Do you not know that Greek is the most scientific language the world has ever seen? And by scientific, I mean precise. For example, we have one word for love. Greek has four. All of these things, the grammar in Greek is so specific. When we say the pronoun you, do we mean singular or plural, masculine or feminine? What do we mean? You don't know unless you can read the context. In Greek, you know exactly what they mean. All of these things God planned, God wanted his people to learn Greek and to speak it so that the Old Testament... Yes, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the abomination in chapter 9, that's different than the abomination in chapter 11, correct? Correct. But it's the same as the abomination in chapter 12. The abomination desolation spoken of in Daniel 9, 27 will be the same, I believe, as in 12, 11. I think it's 12, 11. It is different. This is the, just so as, as Gary's bringing this up, we know that the abomination, we've already studied it in Daniel 9, is when the Antichrist does what? Well, he's going to put a statue up of who? Himself. Now, if you look historically, and I'm getting ahead, but I'm going to answer a question that was raised or a point that was raised. If you look historically, what statue did Antiochus put in the temple? Zeus. Now, some will say Jupiter, but Jupiter and Zeus are the same person. Jupiter is the Roman name for that God. Zeus is the Greek name for that God. But... What did Antiochus name himself? Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God. And some of the best scholars will tell you, if you could see that statue of Zeus that he put up in the temple, it had a striking resemblance to whom? Antiochus, exactly. But Let's look at the other things he said. I want Greek architecture to be what's used. We're going to only use the Greek monetary system, the Greek legal system, and the Greek religious system. Now, if you're a good Hebrew and you believe in God, can you agree to learn and uh, speak the Greek language? Can you agree to use the Greek forms of architecture? Can you agree to use and adopt the Greek monetary system? Yes. Can you agree to use the Greek legal system? 
at least in commercial settings. Can you agree to the Greek religious system? Who had to make a choice about 430 years before Antiochus did this as to basically the same thing? Daniel did. Daniel was to be the example to these people, the exact example of how you live and what you do. It's interesting. Daniel seems to me was the example to those people, and he's also the example to us of how to live an uncompromising life because everything in our country now is trying to get us to compromise our religious views. I don't want to say really religious, but spiritual views, godly views. So Antiochus, of course, believed that Israel would refuse to go along with this edict. So he sent an Athenian philosopher along with a cadre of soldiers to Israel under his command to enforce these. Once they got there, they soon outlawed Jewish worship, including temple worship. Can't go and worship in the temple if you're going to worship uh, Yahweh. You can if you're going to worship Zeus. They outlawed the Jewish sacrificial system. They outlawed their feasts and festivals. They outlawed reading and possessing the Holy Scriptures. They outlawed circumcising their sons. And they outlawed refusing to work on the Sabbath. All of those things they did. He actually installed someone from the tribe of Benjamin as the high priest. You can't do that. It's got to come from the tribe of Levites. But in order to break the spirit of the Israeli people, they took some really harsh measures. Sons who were found circumcised, they were killed and their mothers were killed. This statue of Zeus was erected over the brazen altar. And they would sacrifice swine on this brazen altar now that had been purified for that. Greek soldiers would be set up to come into the temple along with their current paramours and they would perform licentious pagan rites in the temple courts. Can you imagine how God saw that? Imagine how those people who were still worshiping the one true God saw that. They would have drunken orgies in the temple according to the pagan rites of Bacchus. And they would make it compulsory for the Jewish people to attend these orgies. Or shall we say parties. And the Syrian forces... They didn't just carry out these edicts in Jerusalem, but they went to the smaller country towns and villages. Then, as this was hitting, Antiochus himself and others whom he selected would come. They would make these speeches that say, you need to turn. You need to compromise. You need to consider our ways. Very persuasive, excellent oratory. And a lot of the people would buy it. And they would even say there's going to be certain rewards for you if you turn from this archaic religion you're following and take the modern view of the pantheon of the Greeks. And besides the persecution and the eloquent words and the rewards, do you know how many of the Jewish people turned? The majority of them. The majority. And in the future, it's going to be a super, but we'll get to that. I want you to see that as they're doing this, they had these promised rewards. And many Jewish were taken in and compromised their faith and their laws. And in fact, the historians say two-thirds of the Jewish people 
became compromisers. Get along. I don't want to put my sons at risk. I, you know, it's easy for us to say, I can't believe you would be compromising. What if it means my two sons are going to die? What if it means my wife's going to die? You know, that's where the rubber meets the road. What are the Jewish people going to do? What option do they have? Does God ever leave his people without an option? No, he doesn't. But it takes somebody. It takes somebody who has one characteristic, one quality, availability. If you can make yourself available to God, he can use you. You say, no, wait a second. What God really wants is the really qualified person. Now, you see, God has a problem here with us. The more qualified the person is that he selects, the more it appears, well, the success came because of that man. If you look all through scriptures, you take Moses. What was he? A felon who had run from the law and spent 40 years in a dead-end job. How is he qualified to lead God's people? You take David, who was more than likely uh, originated from a, an adulterous relationship. And he was, his family was so embarrassed of him, when Samuel came, they didn't even present him to Samuel. And yet God said, I've seen his heart and I want that man. He's available. If you look at Gideon, he kept saying, well, wait a second, you don't want me... My family is the least in the tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. You don't want me. I'm not qualified. God says, I don't want qualified people. You see, the more unqualified you are when God gives you success, the more clear it is it wasn't you, it was God. That's what he wants. So can we say we're not qualified? You know, Moses said, I can't speak well. God said, who made your mouth? Uh, sorry, I get excited sometimes when I see this because we fail so often to say, I'm available, God. Now, there's a question that comes up, I think, that we need to, to talk about. You remember this, this, this temple, was the original temple was built by Solomon before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And when he built it and then dedicated it, Something happened on that day in the temple. You see, it was a building, just a building before. A beautiful building, but a building nonetheless. And what was it that happened? The Shekinah glory. The, really, the, the embodiment of God, the Holy Spirit, came down, filled the temple. At first, it filled it to such an extent, the workers all had to leave. They couldn't stay in there. But finally, the Shekinah glory went back and centered where? In the Holy of Holies, over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. All right? Well, if you went in there to just to the holy place and you weren't supposed to be in there, what would have happened to you? You'd have died. But if you went into the Holy of Holies, even if you were supposed to get in there, but one little thing was wrong, you would die. Now, do you think that the Babylonians, when they came in and destroyed that temple and they were searching for gold everywhere, you think they didn't go into the Holy of Holies? Of course they did. Why didn't they die? The glory was gone. Exactly right. In Ezekiel chapter 10, 
starting in verse 18, it says this, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. There were two cherubim there. And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And then they departed. There's a famous piece of artwork about this where the glory is leaving the temple. Now, when the Jews came back, they rebuilt the temple. And this was the temple that Antiochus came in. Do you think that Antiochus and his, and or his people didn't go all through that temple? Of course they did, because it now was the temple of Zeus. It wasn't the temple of Yahweh anymore. Why didn't they die? The kind of glory hadn't come back. Why didn't they take that Ark of the Covenant and take it out and take it into his treasury? Because it wasn't there, it was hidden probably still remains hidden today, in my opinion. And we need to understand, to me, that's the, the reason why when Jesus died, his father did what? He grabbed a hold of the top of that curtain, massive curtain, and ripped it in two from top to bottom and said, see, there's nothing in here. Why else would he rip it apart but to let people see? It wasn't there. And so now we have this situation where this abomination occurs and it appears that Satan's winning. The bad guys are winning. And this abominations come down. Now, let's move on. We, we've talked about the abomination of desolation. And I want to talk to you now about these Greek enforcers because they would go from village to village. And they went to a village named Modain. And if you look here at this map, you will see this area here. Here's Jerusalem. Modain is right here. And this is really in the highlands up in the most mountainous areas of Israel. It's a small village. It wasn't important. But in most every village in Israel, they would have a priest that would live there. And they had a priest that lived in Modain at this time. And his name was Mattathias. Mattathias ben Johanan. Mattathias ben Johanan. And they came and they said, they gathered all of the people, all the soldiers brought all the people into the town square, and they constructed an altar there, and they had a pig. And they tell, told Mattathias, we want you to sacrifice this pig on this altar, and then we're going to let everybody share in it, and you will find it's really quite tasty. Now, would that pig be tasty? Yeah, it would. It is sin tasty at the start. Yes, it is. Mattathias looked them right in the face and he said, I will not defile myself or my people. Who does that sound like? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said, we're going to offer you money to do this. In front of all the people, they're offering this. And he said, no, we will not do that. And then a guy in the crowd says, well, wait a second. If he won't do it, I will do it. Will I get that reward? The soldier said, yes. And so he steps up to take the pig. And Mattathias rushes to him and kills him right there on the spot. The soldiers get ready to attack. But Mattathias, he had five sons. And they drew first. 
And they killed those Greek soldiers. And off they went into the, into the hills. And people started to join them. And pretty soon, Madanias, he was old. But he had these five sons. And the top son was this guy right here. His name was Judas. Well, Maccabeus was not his family name. But that was his nickname. Maccabeus. Judas the hammer. And the hammer looked like this. And he started leading a ragtag group of, now, somebody want to say revolutionaries. They weren't revolutionaries. They didn't want a revolution under the government. They were freedom fighters. They wanted independence. Now, you know, we need, we, you've been brainwashed. How many of you believe in the revolutionary war? Raise your hand. Did we have a revolutionary war? No, we didn't. We had a war for independence. We didn't want to revolutionize the British government. We wanted independence from them. When in the course of human events, one nation needs to stand up and tell them the reasons why we're seeking independence. And that's what we did. And that's what they did. They fought for independence. And they fought a guerrilla warfare for three years almost. And finally... They beat the Syrians, and they gained independence. And now they have a temple that's covered with swine juice. And the temple has a menorah that is supposed to be lit at all times. And there was, if the lights ever go out, there was a prescription in the law of what you had to do to relight them and rededicate the temple if something happened. And something obviously had happened, and the temple needed to be rededicated. You needed a special oil, and that oil it needs to be burned in the menorah for eight days to redo, to, to come back in and restore the temple, and to rededicate the temple. And they found a large number of oil supplies there in the temple, but most of them have been fouled by the Syrians. They found... One case or, or barrel of oil that hadn't been fouled. But it was enough only to last for a day. But to get a new supply could take months or at least maybe a week to get a small supply. And they decided, use that oil, light the lamps. But the lamps will go out in a day and then we got to start over. Use that oil light the lamps. So they did. Now, before I tell you what happened, I want you to think back to something. Do you remember the story of Elijah? When God said, leave the brook Cherith and go up to uh, Zarephath, which was on the outside of Sidon. Who, who was uh, Elijah fighting? He was fighting Baal worship. Where was the center of Baal worship in, in the world? Sidon, right near Tyre. Sidon in Lebanon. He sent him to the outskirts. That would be like sending someone, if Dallas was the center of wickedness, sending somebody to Richardson. You know, just right outside. And he sent him there, and there was a widow. And he told the widow, the widow says, oh, you're a worshiper of the Lord God of Israel, aren't you? He said, yes. Now I want you to get me some water. And she said, all right. And she started to walk away and said, oh, wait. Bring me some bread too. She said, I can't do that. Why not? I have enough flour in this bowl 
and enough oil in this jar to make one cake for my son and I. We're gathering sticks here for our last meal, and then we're going to die. You know, there's a drought on. Well, yeah, Elijah kind of knew there was a drought on since he had prayed that it wouldn't rain or have dew, and it's been three and a half years. Pardon me, it had been a year and a half at that point. And he said, no, you do what I'm telling you to do, and God will take care of you. She did, and then she went back, and there was enough flour and enough oil to make food for her son. And there was enough in the next morning to make it for Elijah, and then for her and her son. Do you imagine the boy ever sit there watching that dish to see what happened to the flour? Now, there was a guy who followed Elijah. Do you remember what his name was? Last year, he came in a similar situation, and she said, there's not enough oil. And he said, I tell you what you do. You go gather up all the vessels you can find and bring them here. And she did exactly what the prophet told her to do, and she got all these different vessels. And he said, okay, start pouring from your vessel, which is all oil you have left, into each of these vessels. And before she finished, she'd finished, filled up every single one. You think maybe she wished she'd gotten a few more? But anyway, if, if she filled up every one of them, does God have the ability to do that? Yeah. yeah, of course he does. And so here they start. Now, does it say in the Bible that that oil lasted for the eighth days? No, doesn't say this story's not recorded in the Bible. Did it happen like they claim it did? I'm going to tell you, my answer is I don't know for sure. Now. What is there any proof that it did happen? They will direct you to John chapter 10. At the time of the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple at the portico of Solomon. Now, those who believe in the eight days, the lamp, they would say, see, Jesus celebrated the feast of dedication so that you know it's called the Feast of Dedication. Why? Because they rededicated the temple. It's called the Feast of Lights because the lights burned for the eighth days that was required. Now, I want you to notice something. Here on this one, this is seven candles because that's what's what the menorah was, that where it was burning. Here, though, they light this new menorah because... It has, well, it actually has nine candles, but you see four on each side, eight, representing the eight days. The middle candle there is referred to as the servant. You light it first, and then you use it to light the first one on the first day. On the second day, you use it to write, light the second one, and so on. You notice it's burned out more than these others, because it was the one that was lit first. But most of us know this, this feast or festival as Hanukkah. And there's now a nine candle menorah or set up. But the fact is, that's what this is. And they say now in John 10, that Jesus went to that feast in Jerusalem. Now, I have to admit to you that I read things like a lawyer. Does it say, Don, that he went to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of dedication? It just says he was there at the time in the temple portico of Solomon. Could he be there because he went to the feast? Yes. Could he be there because he just was there and it wasn't, it just happened to be the time of the feast. Yes. So I'm not going to tell you for certain this is true. It seems to me like it is. 
But I'm not going to say for certain it is because it's not, this is not a scriptural account. This is a historical account. So I'm telling you this, though, that their victory became final on the 25th day of Kislev, 164 B.C., exactly three years from the day of the abomination of desolation when Antiochus erected the statue of Zeus slash Antiochus. Should they have won this war? No. Logic and reason will tell you they shouldn't have been able to defeat the Syrian Empire. However, human logic and reason, they don't work very well when God of Israel is involved, do they? They don't work very well when our God, the same God that we serve, uh, is involved. The only question then is, is God involved or not? So, I wanted you to see that, but now I want you to go back to verse 35 again. Daniel 11, verse 35. Before we finish... I want you to notice this passage. It says, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and to make pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Let's try and answer this question first. What is the it is still to come at the appointed time? What? The refining the purging, and the making pure. What is one of the ways that that will happen, does that passage say? Some of those who have insight will fall. What does that mean? Die. Now, I want you to think about this a second. During this persecution and this, and this war for independence, did people who believed in God the way the scriptures taught, did they die? Yeah, they did. Martyred. Killed. Sometimes in battle. Sometimes because they wouldn't obey. Now, has that happened to the Jewish people since then? Yes, it has. In fact, in World War II, do you know what percentage of the Jewish population was murdered? Third. Now, Looking forward, is there going to come this guy who is prefigured by Antiochus? And is he going to take over the world? Is he going to have the same hatred for the Jews? Is he going to kill Jewish people? Do you know what percentage of the Jewish population he will kill during that seven-year period? Two-thirds. That's in Zechariah. It says exactly that. Refining purging and making pure. Now that's going to happen to the Jewish people. And there's going to be a third of the Jewish people who are going to make it through that tribulation and they'll go into the millennial kingdom because of their faith in the one true God. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. Do you believe towards the end of time that the church will have to go through something like that itself? Has the church over the last hundred years been going through that. The accurate statement is most places other than America. Has the Church of America really seen any persecution up to now? Will that come? We will have to make a determination of how we will respond to that. Whether we'll fight or flee. At the start of our nation's history, was there 
persecution of a religious nature in America at the very start while we were ruled by the British. Did you know that it was illegal for anyone to translate, write, and publish a Bible in this country during the time that England? You know, after we won, one of the first acts of the United States Congress was to authorize. I wish I had one of the first printings or one of the copy of one of that first Bible that was authorized by our United States Congress. The United States Congress authorized the Bible. Isn't that against separation of church and state? Baloney, it's not. Our nation was built on those principles. There's no separation of church and state. That's not in the Constitution. The free exercise thereof of our religious freedom is what's in there. But we are going to go through that. I put a, maybe understanding that gives us a better understanding, say, of John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, wait a second. What does that mean? That means God may have to remove some of his people because they're not bearing fruit. Did he have to remove Ananias and Sapphira? Yep. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it'll bear more fruit. Has anyone, I'm not asking for an answer, but has anyone in here had to go through a pruning process? I, I've seen that. In Revelation 3.18, it says, I will advise you, he's talking to one of the churches here, I will advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's talking to that church about the persecution that is to come. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes through tested, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's telling the church, you will be persecuted. The church in America has escaped persecution since we won our war for independence. It is coming back. And it won't be a foreign power that's doing it. It will be our own government who will hate us. Now, as the attack on our church, he talked about last time, and then he's, I'm not at liberty to say everything that I know, but I will tell you this, that there is an attack on our church, and our church has been singled out because if they can beat First Baptist, who can't they beat? So, we need to pray for the people who are making those decisions. Now, there's something that is seeming to make a comeback in our nation has to do with idol worship and the occult becoming very popular. You know, I, Julia and I hate this, but if you leave our house and uh, get on Royal Lane between uh, Abrams and Greenville and you're headed west towards Central Expressway, when you pass Greenville, you'll see a little strip shopping center on the left-hand side. And up on the second floor, you'll see a place that doesn't ever close. Psychic, shaman, and all other kinds of evil there. And, you know, 
I just think it's terrible. You know, Julie prays lightning will come down and strike that place. But, you know, is that stuff really real or is it just fake? The correct answer to that is yes, it's fake and it's real. It's interesting. When you read in a lot of these places in the scriptures where Paul has been in places like Corinth and Athens, he says these are all false gods. He doesn't say they don't exist. He says they're false gods. Why? Because in some respects, they're not God, but they're real. What do you mean real? Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 21. What do I mean then? Paul starts off. That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or, is, or that an idol is anything? He's saying, am I saying all these idols are fake? He says, no. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. These idols many times, occult, shamans, are empowered by demonic beings. I'm trying to say to you, they sacrifice the demons, not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Don't do it. Yes. There's going to be an increase of that anyway, because in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, it talks about the fact that they wouldn't repent of the worship of devils and pharmacia, which is drugs. And it's coming, and it's going to get worse and worse. And it, although that, what you're saying, is occurring during the tribulation period, there's a buildup, and they're preparing. They're preparing us to control us. And we could bring up all kinds of things and show how they're doing that right now. But there's one thing, one attribute of God that is important for us to cling to. When this time comes, what is that attribute? Is it his omnipotence? No. Is it his sovereignty? No. Is it his holiness? No. All of those are important in understanding God. But when the persecution comes, well, let me read it to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful. Read that again. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When the persecution comes, will God be faithful to you? He promises you that. Can he lie to you? But there's temptations coming, Doug. Going to be pressures on me. I don't think I can take it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, that's the promise. We need to have that in there. Now, I don't normally do this. In fact, I don't know when the last time I did but I want to give you some homework. Scripture has been teaching us that Antiochus is a prefigurement of the Antichrist. What does it say? What is the prefigurement? What is it about Antiochus that shows us the Antichrist? The, the last thing on your notes is entitled homework. And it lists Daniel 8, 9 through 14 and 23 through 25. And Daniel 11, 21 through 35. I would like you to spend this week going through those passages and finding every attribute of Antiochus. And let's see next week 
what matches, or we'll start to see it, what matches the Antichrist. And we'll make us a list, and we'll see what is prefigured in Antiochus' life. Now, there may be some things that about Antiochus that are not prefigurements of the Antichrist, but we will see. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could be together today. I thank you for how you have blessed each one of us, just that you've allowed us to live in this country. I thank you that we haven't been put through the persecution that so many else, other people in the world have had to endure because of their faith in you. We thank you that you are faithful, even when it doesn't seem that. I remember as Andrew Brunson talked to us before, he told us at times it didn't seem like God was being faithful, but God was. Help us to learn that so when the time comes, we can cling to it. Now, Father, there are things going on in our nation which we need to come to you and use the most valuable weapon we have, and that's prayer. Pray that you'll turn the hearts of those nine men and women on the Supreme Court, turn them to life and away from death. I pray, Father, that you will work in the situation to give us fair elections. I pray, Father, for the men and women who are willing to stand up and run for office who are believers, that you will bless them and that you will reward their efforts and that we can bring integrity back to government, that we can bring the Spirit of God back to our government, and that we can have people who will stand up for what is right, and the rest of us will join around them and stand with them to let them know they don't have to stand alone. Father, be with our pastor and our church as they fight the attack that's been levied against our church. I pray, Father, that the victory will be able to be strongly honored here in our church, and we will recognize how you intervene. Help us, Father, finally, and most important, to recognize that all we have to be is available. Not qualified, just available. Help me to be available when you want me to do whatever it is you ask me to do. Help me to know. Help my wife to know what you want her to do and that she will be available to whatever it is. And to each and every one of us, Father, help us to look to availability and not being qualified. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.